On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, I'm going to say two words, and I'll be interested to see what your immediate emotional response is to those words. Peg Sayers. Did you shudder? You might have shuddered. Uh, for listeners of a certain age, the name of Peg Sayers could be enough to trigger some more leaving cert sweats. And even though she's been gone from the syllabus for over 25 years, and people don't realise it's that long, um, her name is still synonymous with the whole leaving cert process. But a question does arise. Is it now time to rethink Peg Sayers? A new exhibition at the Museum of Literature Ireland seeks to reintroduce her to us and tries to place the writer in her proper international context and tries to find some of the warmth and humour within one of the all-time great memoirs that maybe a lot of leaving cert students uh, didn't quite get. And Donald has come fresh from the Blaskets. Uh, he's only just <laughs> held himself off to be with us to give us the, the frontline uh, analysis on this. Um, Donald, fair to say that the, the museum, uh, Molly as it's known, it's probably more concerned with the different type of writer than Peg Sayers. Yeah, Leggy and Ish Natorica, Agasnakeshina, Agaun Liquid. Ah, you can hear the nation go, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> it is fair to say that about, about Molly, absolutely. And if you haven't been there before, uh, there's a lot in that name, Molly, because look, it sounds from Museum of Literature Ireland, but it's also a nod in the direction of a famed Molly, which mm. is, of course, Molly Bloom, uh, wife of. Joyce's wandering Jewish anti-hero in Ulysses, Leopold. And I think like when this museum was first talked about a couple of years ago, it, it was billed as the Ulysses Centre. And instead it became something different. It kind of became a museum of mostly 20th century Irish literature. Mm. Uh, but a lot of emphasis on Joyce and his times. And it's very modern. You know, it's kind of aesthetically beautiful and it's very European. It's never mm. really afraid to acknowledge the importance of Paris uh, or other European centres in, in, in shaping Irish literature. But most of the writers in it, I mean, they're primarily English language literature. Yes, they're Irish yeah. writers, but they're European kind of modernist writers. So it's really nice that Molly is now presenting uh, Into the Island, which is something else entirely. You know, I look into that other Irish literary tradition, the island memoirs, but especially the memoir of, of Peg Sayers. But I'd imagine then in trying to present Peg Sayers and try to make her approachable for an audience, they, they know that she's coming with a bit of baggage and that people are always going to be thinking of with the Ortest in mind. Yeah, Simon, o- Simon O'Connor, who's the director of the museum and, and formerly of the of the band The Jimmy Cake, oh. uh, who yeah, they like to fall in Dublin. Everyone was in the, was in the Jimmy Cake at some stage or another, <laughs> or like a, or like a Tory you know government uh, ministry, yeah, <laughs> like a revolving door of bassists. Yeah. Yeah. He he made a good point in, in in the press when he was discussing the very idea of of an exhibition on Peg Sayers. He said, "You're starting with a subject where people who didn't even study her in the Leaving Cert think they've studied her." and dislike her. And that's a great point. And it's very rare that a name can be so synonymous with something as she is with the leaving. And actually, last night before coming on here this morning, I did a quick fire around the texts to friends, mm. you know, on various WhatsApps. And, you know, a few of them were actually adamant that we studied this work in school. They were totally adamant. Uh, at the time of her removal from the curriculum, we were six and seven years of age. Yeah, she was taken off the Leaving Cert syllabus in like 95 or 96. Yeah, but then, oh, I mean, I did my Leaving Cert in 2004 and you'd it, it, almost be sure that we still did it because it still just kind of carries the yeah, notoriety. Because yeah. it's there. It's, it, it, it's, you know, it's in the the zeitgeist with the leaving cert and a senator is on the record in 2006 is telling the Shannon no matter what our personal view of the book might be there is a sense that one has only to mention the name Peg Sayers to a certain age group and one will see a dramatic rolling of the eyes or worse but then (laughs) there's also what's worse you know undeniably uh, there's been attempts in recent years to kind of re-examine her as a writer of importance and warmth you know to to make her you know someone in the canon of Irish female writers Uh, and she's both simultaneously kind of hip and memefied to some you know Mm. this re-emergence of of an Irish language culture we might say uh, while remaining within the realm of the recurring Leaving Cert Nightmare to Mm. others Um, Shout out to intern T.G. Cahar who may or may not be a gay stolumsa in you Um, one of the most uh, 
interesting things about her um, is when she lived because it was a perfect time for the beginning of recording these sorts of stories. Exactly. I think that, that's what's so great about the story of Peg Sayers because we have an oral tradition going back centuries but you know this is uh, you look at when she's born. She's born in the 1870s, 73. She dies in the 1950s. So what that means is she's born into a world which still has a folk memory of you know on Goethe Moore which, yeah. is, which is very recent. Mm. A rich oral tradition around that but lived into an age as you put it when many many you know folklorists collectors historians you know fellas with all kinds of recording equipment on their backs were cycling around the country and trying to collect history there was a kind of frenzy really in the 1930s 40s and 50s a fear that the kind of old world was dying mm. all kinds of fascinating people Alan Lomax you know people like that end up in Ireland recording song other people are trying to record story yeah so you've got the Irish Folklore Commission international linguists all arriving at the door of this woman of this storyteller and she becomes a kind of window into the past you know as a storyteller but the story's great it doesn't begin on the, on, on the Blaskets it begins mm. at Vickerstown Dunquin daughter of Tomás Sayers who's himself a storyteller and then in the beginning I was surprised by this I mean she's educated uh, in Merla Osperla okay. she leaves school at 12 works as a domestic servant in her youth and then life eventually takes her in a radically different direction she falls in love and that's when she moves uh, to, to the Great Blast. Okay, so, so she actually moved there with, with her husband, uh, with Paul Gogohin, so, rather than being native to the island. Exactly, okay. exactly. So you would presume that this is the work of someone who knew this island from you know day one, chapter one of their own lives, but she'd gone there after marrying. Uh, what's remarkable about the Blaskets, uh, for somewhere that are so tiny, and if you've been out there and you, you go to Dunqueen or you go to the visitor centre there and you look out over the Blaskets and they really are like tiny, you can see like, the, the farm are about in the distance and like just the, the Blaskets are so, so small. But for somewhere that is so small, they've produced so many great works of literature, uh, including some other names that we actually might remember from school and from more modern curricula. Yeah, I was looking through you know, the, the Blasket Islands of various censuses. At one point, the population was 160, which, yeah, is, which is amazing. You know, you could you could never invite three people to dinner on the Blaskets because two of them wouldn't be talking to each other. That's <laughs> far far too small a population to just to just function in day to day life. 160 people yeah. in 1911. But it's like well, a yeah, dull Aaron in an entire island. Yeah, it's amazing how much literature that tiny island. Has inspired so on, on Tilanoc or the Island Man great book Fihibli and Foss, which I remember from school mm. uh, 20 years of growing all part of the output of this one island and then in 36 uh, Peg Sayers releases her memoirs and she doesn't write it she kind of dictates it to her son Michal but when it's released, it has immediate appeal, and I think that's because it's a moment in time. You know, this is the, the this is the time of the first De Valera mm. government, the De Valerian Ireland, yeah. the, the comely maidens at the crossroads, <laughs> all of that. There's an appeal in 1930s yeah. Ireland, but but, but particularly so because if you go and I know you, you've got them here in your notes, but the, the first paragraph or one of the opening paragraphs of, of her memoir. <laughs> It, it already it just nails that idea that she that she's got one foot in either camp just because of how evocative it is. Absolutely, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I always loved Beckett's line, you know, the sun rose having no alternative on the nothing new, and you know, from Murphy, and maybe the opening how, words of Peg Sayers' what a memoirs. Way to make sunrise into nihilism. That, <laughs> like, that's that's just, impressive. Just as joyous, I am an old woman now, one foot in the grave and the other on its edge. I've experienced much ease and much hardship from the day I was born until this very day. Had I known in advance half or even one third of what the future had in store for me, my heart wouldn't have been as gay or as courageous as it was in the beginning of my days. <laughs> right, there, there's a mood uh, for a Sunday lunchtime. Um, what's, what's good though is that, and, and this is what's important, because people remember stuff like that or they remember, you know, the, oh, the keening or whatever else, and they think, oh God, it's all misery. But, but that quote or that, that selective perception, it doesn't give us the full picture of what she was up to. Exactly. And, you know, very rarely has a book been so defined by such a, a tiny part of it. You know, when you get into this, all human life uh, is there. There's much more diversity of experience within the book. There's colour, there's, there's fun. Uh, and, you know, it was the light as well as the darkness. I think 
that drew people, that brought people to, to see her. So uh, Robin Fowler, who's a key figure in the British Museum, keeper of manuscripts there over many years, uh, he comes to visit her. He writes that she's a natural orator with so keen a sense of turn of phrase and the lifting rhythm appropriate to Irish that her words could be written down as they leave her lips and they would have the effect of literature. Which is which is what happened really, isn't it? Because it was just dictated. It was exactly. dictated for her son. And, yeah. Exactly, he nailed it. That's what it was. It was the oral tradition at its best. Uh, Seamus Ennis is a visitor too, later translates... Uh, some some of her work. So, I mean, the, 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 the people are not coming to visit her because of paragraphs like that. They're coming to visit her because they feel that the entire human experience, if you will, of the Blaskett's life, the good and the bad, is there. Now, this entire genre, the the island memoir, um, it was eventually taken on by one of Ireland's great satirists. And that maybe this is why some people sort of think of it as being something worth deriding as well. But that satirist had a bit of a soft spot for it all as well. Yeah, Flat O'Brien or Miles Nogopolin or Brian O'Nolan, depending what day of the week it was, uh, in on bail O'Brien. It's worth saying actually at the beginning, Flan O'Brien had a great respect for the work uh, and I think he kind of felt that only great literature could be satirised or parodied. You know, mm. he was an Irish language speaker. Yeah, he was punching up And writer, exactly. And, but it's hard not to see uh, the opening words of, of Pegg's memoir when you read on Bale Booked. Uh, it said in Corkadurka, a fictional remote quilted village where, quote, it never stops raining and everyone lives in desperate poverty and always will. And the book is written by a resident named Bonaparte Okunasa. <laughs> and I think the joke wasn't so much on Gwaelgore, it's probably on the way society spoke of and envisioned mm. uh, the Gwael talked. I mean, in real life, a cardinal had famously said that wherever the Irish language is spoken, the people are pure and innocent. Like, it's not an amazing thing to say, it's just a language. How could it make people pure yeah. and innocent? So that was the, the context, if you will, of, of, of the time. But actually, maybe some of the nuance is lost there because he's not necessarily having a go at the natives of those areas, that it actually might have been more of a satire on the Dublin Gwaelgore who might go down or Falkor Sasaura and then end up you know trying they're, they're, they're the ones who are actually being poked fun at rather than people like Peg herself Yeah there's a beautiful moment in On Bail Booked where you know it's visited by these Gwaelgore even the big smoke and they decide that not only should the people speak only Irish but everything they speak about should be the language question. Uh, <laughs> one, yeah. one so they don't talk about the weather, they don't talk about sport, <laughs> yeah. they don't talk about politics. All they talk about is the language. One character tells a gathered crowd Gaelics he said it's it delights my Gaelic heart to be there to, here today speaking Gaelic with you at this Gaelic fish in the centre of the Gwaeltocht. May I state that I'm a Gael. I'm Gaelic front and back, above and below. And in the end, the Dublin visitors in that book abandon the area, quote, because the poverty is too poor, the authenticity too authentic, and the Gaelicism too Gaelic. <laughs> <laughs> um, in time, then, the Blaskets themselves become abandoned. And that really then is, is the end of an era, not only for, for life there, but for literature as well. Yeah, I mean, the Blaskets are abandoned in the 1950s. Their evacuations ordered by De Valera. Someone who such a romantic idea about I island life. I was going to say that it's kind of remarkable that someone who, who had this idea of rural communities being sustainable that he would be the one who decides this this is now sort of beyond saving and that these people need to be incorporated into the mainland. And that great feeling of, of kind of disconnect and try, trying to bridge the two. But by then Peg had already moved uh, to the mainland and at the time I mean there was a lot of lamenting in the papers about the end of the the, the Blaskets readers of one paper were told the Atlantic which dominates the lives of the Blasket Island people asserted its supremacy on Tuesday the day appointed by the Land Commission to have this community of 22 people 22 people wow. and their furniture transferred over to four newly built cottages at Dunquim with three acres of land attached so you know in the end we talk we joke about the 1911 census saying there's 160 people living there by the time they leave the islands is 22 mm. and then Peg of course she dies in, in, in 1958 and yeah I mean as we as we got into today I think her importance primarily is, is when she lived 
but she's a reminder, I think, of how much we owe to the Folklore Commission, mm. the people like Seamus Ennis in his own field and others uh, who believe that these kind of stories were worth telling, that you had to go out there and get them. And maybe it's time that we give her another chance, you know, free from the tyranny of the Ortest. Uh, and the Laving and Nishka and everything else. Uh, <laughs> that uh, exhibition is now open at the Museum of Literature Ireland, Molly, M-O-L-I. I'm sure you'll find more details at molly.ie. Um, it's also, it's on the, is, do we call that the south side of St. Stephen's Green? It's beside the um, the old UCD headquarters and University Chapel there. It's on the south side. By Newman House. By Newman House there. So it's always worth popping in as well. Very nice cafe as much as anything else nice for a lunchtime coffee just in somewhere a little bit away from, from the heart of commercial Dublin uh, Donald Fallon is the author of the Come Here To Me books and of Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia which is about the social history of Dublin in the 20th century he's also the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast about the history of Dublin which you'll find anywhere you get your audio online that is all the time that we have for you this Sunday lunchtime on uh, News Talk a big thank you to everyone who's been involved in today's production including Simon Keane Agna Vegarchik Georgia Cardozo who was on sound and our producer in absentia today Aidan McKelvey Off the Ball is next with all the up Dates from the All-Ireland semi-final, Dublin versus Kerry, and of course the All-Ireland junior football final between Kilkenny and New York. That is a sentence that I just said out loud. Kilkenny and New York are playing in an All-Ireland football final today. Up the cats. My wife will kill me otherwise. Uh, We are back next Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Until then, for me, Gavin Riley, and all the team, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.